Lynn Schwist, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be part of it. Thank you for asking me. Absolutely. So this is a tremendous honor. Uh, You are a global visionary uh, who's committed to alleviating poverty and hunger and supporting social justice and environmental sustainability. And given you've had such a very rich uh, career, perhaps you can help unpack some of those details for us. So how would you give us a biography of, of the work that you've been doing and are still engaged in? Well, let's see. Um, I've been what I call a pro-activist pretty much all my adult life, and I call myself a pro-activist, distinguishing that um, I'm an activist for, uh, primarily for, not against, although there's things that I would like to change. I bear a lot of them. But um, if I stand in my vision for the world or what I see is uh, the world that I think we all want, frankly, and I'm standing there and committed to that, then I'm more effective in uh, dismantling or addressing things that stand in the way of that, rather than being against. So as a pro-activist, I've worked on um, eradicating world hunger, uh, really standing for the end of hunger and um, on, on this planet. I've worked on um, the eradication of poverty very, very directly. I've worked on the empowerment of women and girls, which is in many ways the key intervention to ending world hunger. Uh, I've worked on the evolution of human consciousness. I used to chair the Institute of Noetic Sciences in uh, uh, and the work uh, on consciousness that came out of Edgar Mitchell, one of the astronauts who landed on the moon. And when he saw the earth, he it just blew his mind and <laughs> he came back and started the Institute. Um, and then now I work with the uh, with the indigenous peoples of the sacred headwaters of the Amazon rainforest, the Achuar, the Shuar, the Shiwiar, the Zapra, the Andoans, the Kichwas, the Walranis, the amazing people who live in the actual headwaters region, the sacred headwaters it's called, of uh, the Amazon, which is southern Ecuador and northern Peru, uh, with the Pachamama Alliance. And we do that work to empower the indigenous people who are the natural custodians of those forests. Uh, and um, in a partnership with them, an alliance between them and conscious committee people like yourself and probably all the people listening to this, for the sustainability of life itself. And then all of that, plus working with the Nobel Women Peace Prize laureates on women's and issues, particularly violence against women and girls, um, all those things are what are often called nonprofits or NGOs or uh, 501c3s is the tax name for them. I don't like that name. I call them social profit work uh, because they generate a social profit, a huge profit, a social profit. So I call them social profits. And um, when you're engaged in social profit work, you raise money. Um, and so I'm also a fundraiser. And uh, where, I, whenever I, in whatever way I am uh, able, I'm a philanthropist too. So I've done a lot of work with money. And so the uh, the work uh, with money, asking for money, training people to ask for money, um, working with some of the most resource poor people on earth and some of the resource rich people on earth and all of us in between, I've learned a lot about our relationship, our distorted, dysfunctional, very troubled in almost every case relationship with money. And so, um, from a, not from a financial uh, viewpoint, not from, you know, kind of investment strategies or, or financial literacy, but really our relationship with money, our emotional 
psychological, spiritual relationship with money, which led me to write a book called The Soul of Money. Uh, and that led me to start an institute called The Soul of Money. So that was a long answer to your question, but I do a lot of things. I'm a global proactivist who wrote a book called The Soul of Money and started an institute, and I've currently turned most of my attention um, to the the work of the Pachamama Alliance, uh, in that work, which we can talk about, whatever you want, all of those things. Great. Yeah, it really is so inspiring the work that you're doing. And what I find pretty fascinating is how you're reframing nonprofits to be able to be called social. Um, you know, this idea of social profit is it just makes so much sense and it just makes it so much more powerful to perceive them that way. Uh, so that that's fascinating. Uh, you know, I think an interesting place to start the conversation, given this podcast extols the virtues of curiosity and question and dwelling in possibility. And I think one of the more powerful uh, things that we should be doing in terms of questioning is uh, this underlying assumption we have around money. It seems that for many of us, it has become this false idol. And we often think that it can alleviate um, so much, uh, more than it perhaps can. So I'm wondering if we could start there. And what what is true prosperity or true wealth? It seems our definitions are quite narrow, and, and you've really expanded that. Well, um, I consider a wealth, actually in the etymology of that word, comes from well-being, well-being. And then if you think about the word well-being, it's really the well of being in everyone's life, which is an infinite well, in my view, the well of being. So true wealth, I believe, is, is really well-being, feeling good about yourself, um, knowing who you are, uh, being fully um, conscious, being uh, content in a way that your life is about um, serving others, making a difference, um, sharing, contributing. So that's true wealth in, in, in my definition. Um, it's not, that's not what it says in the dictionary, but I think that's what it really is. And I'll just say I've learned most of my lessons about money, um, uh, including what I'm saying now about wealth, from people that I actually used to call poor. And um, I, I say this whenever I can to disabuse us all of using that label for a human being because when you work with people that I used to call poor people in Ethiopia after the 1984-1985 famine or people in in Mozambique after that brutal war or people living from hand to mouth in a uh, in a situation in India or people in 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 Harlem who can barely pay their rent and or people living on the street, when you really get to know them, people living in um, in adverse conditions, war, poverty, there's nothing poor about them, actually. They are strong. They have to be resilient. I'm thinking of the women in Ethiopia after the famine, so intelligent. They didn't know how to read or write, but incredibly intelligent human beings. The intelligence of, of survival, of understanding how to make uh, a life when there's no resources and no water and no food and no seeds. Um, incredible innovation, incredible creativity, incredible commitment to to their families and to relationships and the strength of what I call their inner resources, 
with no outer resources. And so to call them poor is to demean them and those of us who would label someone that way. It's actually that they're whole and complete people with living in the circumstances of poverty, living in poor circumstances. What's poor is the circumstances, not them. And they're whole and complete. In fact, those poor circumstances often produce uh, a necessary kind of strength and courage and innovation and creativity and love in in people um, or enhance or amplify or demand that kind of um, quality. And I, I in, in those settings, in those places where I've been, and I'll say in like, like in Bangladesh after a, a terrible flood, um, you, you, you ex- experience uh, these people have more courage to live through one day than you and I are going to need in our lifetime. I mean, really. And so um, I've learned a lot of my lessons about true wealth from people who have, have what you and I would call nothing. And then also from people that I used to call rich, which I, I would never label people that way any longer because it, it demeans them and we don't see them as whole and complete people. Uh, they're they're living in the circumstances of 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 excess actually, and there's a a, a a a challenge in that. You know, Mother Teresa said the vicious cycle of wealth can be as intractable and as painful, as lonely, as heartbreaking as the vicious vicious cycle of poverty. So, um, one thing that I want to say is that I my lessons about money and what you're asking about wealth have come from a, a broad spectrum of humanity. And I see that there are no haves and have-nots. There's only have, H-A-V-E. Everybody has talent. Everybody has wholeness. Everybody has dreams. Everybody has something to contribute. Everybody matters. Everybody makes a difference. Everybody has access to the well of being, to true wealth. And some of the wealthiest people in that definition that I've ever known are some of the people I worked with, some of the women in particular, but women and men and children, but particularly I'm thinking about women in Africa who found their their wealth in in song, in planting seeds, in um, in digging digging for an underground lake, in in the camaraderie and love and dancing with one another and forgiving uh, uh, their perpetrator. I mean, just amazing people on this planet where. I've had the privilege of working to see what true wealth really is. And I say it's that sense of wholeness, completeness, and inner strength um, that makes you a whole person wanting to share and contribute to others and to make a difference with your life. So that's what I think true wealth is. And I, you know, I know we're talking about money, so we probably should get to that topic. But but I I'm I'm very grateful for that first question. Thank you. Well, amen. I I would agree. And anecdotally, having traveled around the world, I would say that I've been blown away by your definition of wealth with people that externally don't seem to have anything, whether it be in India or Honduras or Indonesia, just the warmth, the generosity, the ingenuity, the grit and resilience you're mentioning. It's very uh, awe-inspiring and reminds one that often how much we skew what really matters um, in our own particular culture. Um, Another follow-up would be in places like the Bay Area, uh, places that are 
outwardly so wealthy. How are we impoverished? What what are some of the ways that you've seen that in spite of this external uh, and material wealth, what can we really be lacking? What have we not paid attention to um, that really at the end of the day and end of a life really matters most? Well, I would say that the um, one of the most important things that I've learned is that the consumer society is so seductive. Um, the you know, kind of shiny objects of all the things that we can have and the what money can buy and uh, the the marketing and advertising that's so skillful and so compelling and so almost irresistible that we don't have any um, real, let's say, um, understanding or appreciation of what we already have. and um, And so we're chasing, chasing, chasing. And when we acquire and accumulate, we get a little bit of a high, you know, if you buy a new this or a new that, but, but chasing more, the, the kind of, you know, mania of more, more of anything, really more this, more that, more, more square feet in our house, more attractive <laughs> back black pants that make you look thinner for a woman or more, um, uh, more this or more that, that chase has our gaze Literally, I gaze, but our uh, uh, what I mean by that is also our attention and consciousness on what we don't have, and wanting it, and craving it, and being seduced by it, and thinking we need it, and um, and so we have no, almost nothing left to enjoy what we do have, what's mm. already there, and so when we let go of that that grip, that chase, it frees up a ton of energy that's locked up in in elsewhere, in the next thing, um, to, to, to appreciate what we already have, which is our own wholeness, our own, you know, our, our the incredible power of our, of our life. And, um, you know, when you acquire more and more and more all the time, it, it satisfies you temporarily, but then it leads you to lack, especially when you're acquiring what you don't really need. It leads you ultimately to another experience of lack, false lack, where you think you need more again. And then that leads you to a, a little bit of a high and maybe a big high. But then pretty soon you need more. It's just an endless cycle. And so I think the impoverishedness of the Bay Area or any affluent place or any affluent situation is that you never really, I mean, partially yes for a while, but ultimately appreciate what you actually already have before you start acquiring stuff. And that is your own life, your health, your well-being, your children, you, the love you have for your friends, the, um, the, the gift of life, the, 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 you know, the waking up in the morning and turning on the faucet and have clean, fresh water, uh, you know, the, the incredible Bay Area, um, the beauty of a, of a sunrise. I mean, how many people actually see the sunrise or even think about the sunrise, et cetera. So I'm saying kind of, you know, the, what's obvious, but it actually is so practical. Uh, it sounds romantic what I'm talking about, but it's super practical. And you can reframe, recast, resource, reboot, recreate, recontextualize your life in a way that what you focus on is what you already have. And when you do that, all you want to do is share it. And true prosperity, true wealth comes from sharing, comes from sharing what you have, serving, contributing,
being of use to other people. It doesn't come from more. It comes from giving away. It's the opposite of what we think. So a lot of this accumulation actually creates a kind of poverty of the soul, the impoverished need for more, the craving, and um, and then keeping up with other people who seem to have more than we do. There's always going to be somebody who has more than you do. Um, and so that longing to be who and what you're not or have what you don't have makes us unhappy and is a, a, a form of impoverishment. It's a, it's a vicious cycle, like Mother Teresa said. Right. It's so fascinating just how ironic uh, affluent cultures uh, can be with this scarcity mindset and landscape in spite of all the tremendous uh, wealth on so many ways. We don't appreciate all the simple things that we have. And I've definitely seen it uh, in spades at times in my own life and, and those around me. And it is interesting how that rewiring can be done. Um, one of the things in your book, I believe it's one of the the, the truths you mentioned, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is what one appreciates, appreciates. Is that accurate? Yes. I, I have a, a kind of a principle that's a, a phrase that describes it in, in short, but the principle, I call it the principle of sufficiency, that if you let go of trying to get more of what you don't really need, it frees up oceans of energy to turn and pay attention to what you already have. Mm. When you pay attention to what you already have, when you nourish it, when you make a difference with it, and when you share it, it expands. So when you're, so that that's the another way of saying what you appreciate appreciates. When you just think about how grateful you are for the friends you have, or when you're expressing love to someone you care about, that love grows in the expression of it. Or when you share, when you contribute money, for example, since I'm a fundraiser, I should say that. When people contribute money, that's when they experience their prosperity, not when they're holding on to it or hoarding it or trying to get more of it. That's when they experience scarcity. But when they're giving something to someone else, when you're sharing a meal with other people, that's when you feel prosperous. When you're sharing, the key to prosperity actually is sharing. And affluence has a, a dark side. It's called by one author that I know influenza i'm sorry affluenza affluenza yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of makes you sick because you right. you think you've got to have more of everything and you don't know what to do with what you have so you just have to have more you know if you have a a boat then you have to have a dock if you have a dock you have to have a yacht club if you have to have a yacht club then you have to have a certain kind of friends to entertain there and it, you know it goes on and on and then you need a you, you just keep needing more and more and more there's no end to it so it's always uh, a um, you're always dissatisfied, but if you pay attention to what you already have, and you know that by sharing it and appreciating it and being grateful for it, it it expands in the nourishment of that appreciation, then you're constantly in a state of prosperity. I have a wonderful teacher named Brother David Stendel Rost. You may know of him. He, yeah. he runs a website called Gratefulness.org, and he's this ninety-two almost. Benedictine monk. He has no possessions. I mean, he has a little monk outfit and a journal, kind of. But he is so grateful for, you know, water, for for food, for a chair to sit down and a pillow 
to lay his head on. He, he and he he'll do things like he'll say, "Today I'm going to be grateful for yellow," <laughs> and then everything yellow. He just oh the sun is out today. Oh this I like that yellow folder and that's so beautiful. That daisy, the center of that white daisy, that yellow, that golden color. He he he'll just go. He'll have just the best day because he decided to focus on yellow or be grateful for it. He's <laughs> just amazing. Wow. Um, so I. At what you appreciate appreciates it really too. If you think about something you really, really appreciate and you start sharing how much you appreciate it, your love for it and its value to you grows in your act of appreciating it. It appreciates. Wow. Yeah, that makes it just makes a certain amount of intuitive sense. And I guess the real challenge and question for all of us is to start doing that and see if, uh, if a greater sense of prosperity begins to upwell from within. Yeah. Uh, one of the, you know, so given that your book is the soul of money, what role does money in the way that we all think of it play in true prosperity? Well, money is important and I know we all love it and want more of it. And it serves us very, very well when we're not kapooky crazy about it. Um, but, uh, if we think of it as an energy, some people would talk about it that way. I've heard Deepak Chopra talk about it. Um, you know, a, a metaphor of blood. I use the metaphor water because I learned from a, a very, very wise woman in Harlem that you and I would label poor if, if I'd label people that way, but I don't anymore. But she, um, she made me realize that money is like water, that it flows. It's a current that's why we call it a currency. And we invented it. We human beings invented it. It's not part of the natural world. It doesn't, pennies do not fall from heaven and, and money does not grow on trees. We invented money. We made it up. It's our creation and we become totally at the effect of it. But if we remember that we created it and we created it to ensure that everyone everywhere would have everything that they needed. And, you know, it's kind of gotten off track now from that original invention 4,500 years ago. But it is... It was created to flow through the community, and now uh, the community is, is the whole world. And it does flow. It flows. It moves through every life. And um, that's why it's called a currency. And if you think of it like water, when it's flowing and when it's, when it's clear and clean and it has integrity, it can purify, it can cleanse like water, it can make things grow, it can nourish, it can even heal and wash and, and cleanse. But when uh, money, like water, carries um, bad energy, I'll, I'll, I'll say, let's go to water, like infection or germs, it can kill, not water, but what it's carrying. The same thing with money. Money is innocent, but what we lay on it, the the way we use it, the lack of integrity with which it's earned or or it's uh, it's it's sent along to 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 hurt, to damage, to marginalize, to 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 when it's hoarded, um, you know, like water. When you think about water, when it's flowing, it it, it works, but when it's held and 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 stagnant. It, it turns toxic and it makes you sick. Same thing with money. When, when it's hoarded and held, it, it starts to blind that person who's holding it. They think they are it. They can't let it go. They think it is who they are. That's why calling 
rich people rich uh, people is 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 detrimental to them because they think they are their trust fund, they are their salary, they are their stock price, and if anything happens to that, then they, then their survival's at stake. But but when we realize it flows through every life, it doesn't belong to any of us, or it belongs to all of us, and we're the trustees of it for the moment. Right. And how we bring it into our life, how we use it when we have it to nourish ourselves, our families, and what we what our real needs are, and then how we pass it on really has power, has way more power than we know. And it can hurt, it can kill, it can destroy, it can it can do all kinds of things, and it can heal and make things prosper and and cleanse and purify. So um why I called my book and my institute the soul of money is not because money has soul, but because we do, and we can give it soul. We can put our money and our soul, which is usually pretty far apart in the way we think, together and be soulful and heartful in the way that we uh, include money in our life. And, and rather than have it in the foreground, the point of everything, have it be that which makes us more effective as living uh, human beings who who care, who serve, who make a difference, and when money is used that way, and it's it's a it's a tool for the uh, self expression that we have for humanity, that's true wealth. That's really being uh, true to what money is here to to provide for us. So that's some of. That's one answer to your question. I could go on for a couple hours, as you can tell. Right. Yeah, it's a wonderful response. And when it can be used as that tool um, and of service, then then it is interesting how how powerful and effective it can be. It makes me think of the work of the the moral philosopher William McCaskill, who wrote a book, Doing Good Better, I believe. And uh, I think he, after $30,000 a year, he gives everything else away uh, along some of those principles and lines, which makes me think of the work that you're doing with the Panchamama Alliance of empowering indigenous people in the Amazon. And so I'm wondering if you could perhaps talk about that, because it seems that it's not just form of paternalism, but you're truly empowering them to reclaim their land, to, to conserve their, their land as people are encroaching upon the rainforest. And I'm wondering, um, why is that important work? Uh, why, why should we care about what's happening in the Amazon and to indigenous communities um, there and elsewhere? Uh, great, great. Thank you for asking me to talk about that. Well, one, I just want to say something wonderful about the indigenous people first and, and money, because when we first arrived in Achuar territory in, in southeastern Ecuador in the Amazon, we were invited there by them, uh, a, a tribe that had very little contact. And they had had no contact with money. They didn't understand it because they live in this amazing abundant forest. And they have everything they need there. So they say to us, you know, we, we told them if they're going to interact with the outside world, you're going to run into this thing called money. And <laughs> they had kind of heard about it, but they didn't really understand what it was. And it was so cool to talk to them about it because they say, well, you can't hunt for it. You can't eat it. Why does everybody want it? <laughs> and it made me realize, oh, my God, that's so true. Right. Um, so um, the, the, the Pachamama Alliance is an alliance between indigenous peoples of the sacred headwaters of the Amazon rainforest and conscious, committed people in the modern world like you for the sustainability of life. 
And the indigenous peoples of the Amazon in this particular region called the Sacred Headwaters know that they are the keepers and the custodians of the very, very spirit of life. The Amazon rainforest is uh, larger than the United States. It's huge. It straddles nine countries and it goes all the way across the South American continent. It is the largest freshwater source on earth. You can go out 150 miles in the Atlantic Ocean where the Amazon empties into this into the Atlantic Ocean and the water is still fresh 150 miles out. Wow. Um, and not only is it the largest freshwater source on earth, it is a larger river system than all the next six largest river systems in the world combined. So it's it's so important. Also, not only the water that wa- runs through that river system, but there's something called the flying rivers, which is a new uh, term and a new discovery by ecologists. And that is the columns of mist that come up every morning from the billions and billions and billions of trees. One mature tree in the Amazon emits a thousand liters of water in mist in the morning, which is more, so the flying rivers, they call them, uh, which is that mist combined every day has more water than is actually in the Amazon river system every single day. And those flying rivers move around the planet through the trade winds and actually are the source of the climate system, the whole climate system. So not only is the, the Amazon rainforest uh, the lungs of the planet, along with the oceans, very important for our capacity to breathe. It's also the hydrological heart of the planetary climate system. It's both the lungs of the world and the heart of the world. Now, just think about it. If something happens to your heart, you die. If something happens to your lungs, you die. I mean, those are two things we cannot live without. So we're um, we're talking about the heart and the lungs of our planet. And the source of the Amazon rainforest is the sacred headwaters, which at this moment remains completely and totally roadless, pristine, and untouched. Even though for 200 years, and particularly we've been there for 2023-24, last 23-24, every major oil company on earth has tried to get in there because there's oil under those forests. But the indigenous people, it really, it's like a handful compared to the size of a Exxon or a Bidgers Petroleum or a or a you know Chevron who have millions of employees and billions of dollars uh, and can kind of do whatever they want on this planet, they can't get in there because the indigenous people are so fierce and so organized and so powerful and so spiritually um, connected. And Pachamama Alliance stands behind them and with them. We empower the indigenous people to protect those lands and forests on which their life depends, but also on which our life depends. So they protect it not only for themselves, but for the future of life. And they know that. And they've asked for our partnership. They've asked for modern world friends to help them understand the modern world so they can defend themselves against it and have modern world allies. And we at Pachamama Alliance, that's who we are. So we stand with them and for them for the protection of those forests, which they own. They own their land. They're nations, but they don't own the subsurface rights. Ecuador and Peru own the subsurface rights. And both Ecuador and Peru, 
their economies are 95, sorry, 45% uh, dependent on oil and mining. So the, 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 the forests are in a constant threat, yet they're pristine, roadless, and incredible. And um, so I'll, I'll say a couple more things to give you a fuller picture of Pachamama Alliance. Pachamama, by the way, means Mother Earth, that word, Pachamama Alliance, an alliance between the indigenous peoples of the Amazon and conscious committed people in the, mother, in the modern world for the sustainability of life. But also they said to us, they, the Achuar, when we first came to them at their invitation, um, Bill Twist, myself, and John Perkins are the three founders of the Pachamama Alliance. They told us, they said, if you're coming to help us, even though we invited you here, don't waste your time. But if you're coming because you know your liberation is bound up with ours, then let's work together. Right. And that is a really, really powerful foundation for a collaboration. Absolutely. Um, and then they also said that the most important work we could do in addition to working with them to protect their, their land, their culture, and these forests is to go home and change the dream of the modern world, which I'm sure is what your podcast is ultimately about. <laughs> and when they say change the dream of the modern world, a pretty daunting assignment. <laughs> However, we took it on, we took it seriously, and we invented um, transformational educational programs that awaken people from the dream or what's what I'll, I'll rename the trance that we're in, the consumer trance, to create a new green dream a thriving, just, and sustainable way of life, what we call an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet. So Pachamama Alliance also is uh, a huge transformational educational movement uh, in 86 countries where we deliver the Awakening the Dreamer Symposium, the Game Changer Intensive, and the Drawdown Course. These are courses that shift your way of being and thinking and your understanding of your role in the world, your role in history, and your role in the sustainable future of life and social justice for all people. So um, Pachamama Alliance is all of that. Wow. Sounds like a remarkable organization and I guess really alliance. Um, so when we think about indigenous cultures, often people can think about how they need to get caught up with the time, so to speak. Naturally, uh, people like yourself and maybe anthropologists that have been living with indigenous communities recognizing there's a tremendous amount of wisdom and knowledge. Why is indigenous knowledge important? Why does it matter in the modern world? What can we learn from them? Well, um, just as I said about their mandate, really, to change the dream of the modern world, yeah. they can see that we are in a trance because they're not in it. Right. So it's almost like a coach, you know, who's not on mm. the basketball floor, but can see that this player needs to tweak that or the other thing, or a coach that goes into a company and doesn't, you know, that, that can see the culture is kind of screwed up in the company because they're not in it. The, right. the, the indigenous people, they don't make us wrong. It's just absolutely amazing. Mm. They don't make us wrong. They have a lot of compassion for how deep our trance is, and they're not in the trance, and they can wake us up because they're not in it. They can see how caught we are. Plus, they're not living in the forest. They are of the forest. They are. They're naturally, um, they, they see, uh, you know, when we walk through 
Zapper territory, which is one of the tribes we work with that, uh, that we, you know, they're just amazing, amazing people. When we walk through the forest with them behind them, when they, they have a machete and they cut a trail, they walk through the forest in communion and in communication with what they call the millions of millions of souls that inhabit the forest. And they're talking about a leaf and an ant and a snake and a bird. Any form of life for them is a soul. And they have a reverence for the millions of souls in the forest who they consider to be their kin, their brothers and sisters. Like, I'm not kidding. They, that's not some romantic notion. They really, that's how they live. That's how they think. That's who they are. And we need to have a healthy dose of that. We who take off, cut off an entire mountaintop or make a canal through a whole continent or, um, or uh, have no uh, qualms about polluting an entire rainforest for oil or polluting a lake because we need to, you know, dump the waste from a cruise ship that has, you know, 40,000 people on it. Um, we, we don't think of nature that way. Um, they do. So it's, it's not that they live in nature in a conscious way. That would be understating their relationship with nature or relationship with life. They are a part of the warp and weave and texture of life itself. And that way of seeing the world really, and you, when you hang out with them the way I have, it really changes everything for you. I mean, it is a completely different metaphor, as you were talking about earlier. It's, it's, a, it's a different story. And we live consistent with the story we tell ourselves about who we are. We live, our actions are a correlate to the way the world shows up for us. If the world shows up for us as it's here for our exploitation, our extraction, our it's here for us, then you just take everything you need without a, a qualm. But but as we say in our Waking Dreamer Symposium, we think we can, we, we actually believe we can throw something away. But where is a way? There's no yeah. such place. There's no such place. And indigenous people, they don't even have the word away in their, in their language. They don't even have the word for I or me. All indigenous cultures on this planet that are here today and probably who have ever lived have never had a, a word for I or me. They don't individuate the way we do. What's their highest ethic is the good of the community and the communion of life. And if the community is healthy and the communion of life is healthy, they're fine. That's their security. That's their currency. That's everything. They don't individuate. We individuate so much that we individuate at the expense of, of others, of the natural world, of other people, of other species. And if you think about it, we're so I, me centered that we name everything iPhone, iMac, I, I'm not, it's not just Apple, but we do this with right. everything. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're, um, we have a lot to learn from them and we're not bad and wrong. We've just lost our way a little bit and they can help us find our way back to uh, a place where we can live in harmony with one another, with the natural world in the long-term future of life. Absolutely. When I really love the the way you uh, looked at it, that they could be uh, coaches in many respects uh, to help us wake from that trance. So yeah, it seems like there's uh, 
a lot of, of wisdom and knowledge that uh, they have for us if we're open and willing. Let me say something else about them too, because when I first went there, I had the I had been working on hunger and poverty all over the world, so I was a pretty, you know, I, I was pretty hip to other cultures. I mean, very hip to other cultures, but I'd never been in the Amazon. And when I went to the Amazon, and people were living the way they live there, just as they've lived for thousands of years, I realized that I had an unconscious bias, which I think it probably is very common that they were arrested in their development and that they were primitive mm-hmm. and that they were behind, they were underdeveloped, all those words. I wouldn't have said them because, you know, you don't talk that way, but that was my unconscious, unexamined assumption about them until I got to know them. And then I realized they are so sophisticated. I mean, really, it is just incredible. And they're sophisticated and highly, highly evolved in ways that we are very arrested, where our, where we're underdeveloped. They're very sophisticated in their understanding of dreams. They're very sophisticated in their understanding of the natural world and the balance of life. They're very sophisticated in their understanding of the spirit world. I mean, really, really sophisticated. Whereas we're very, and they're not sophisticated in, in, the, in the material world. They don't kind of care about that. So they're not you know, you might say they're in a completely different place there. They say there's this wonderful prophecy that I'd like to tell you, if I can, called the prophecy of the eagle and the condor, which says that at the beginning of the fifth Pachacuti, which began, um, we're at the beginning of that, that there's a Pachacutis are 500 year cycles in, in, in their way of counting time. And the last Pachacuti was called the Pachacuti of Dominance and Darkness, and it began right around 1492, if you, if that date rings a bell, <laughs> and, um, and ended around 1992, or began to end in 1992, 500 years later, when the Pachacuti of Balance and Light is now about to begin. And um, the the prophecy about this time in history is is called the the prophecy of the eagle and the condor and it says that this it says the eagle people at this time in history and that's the eagle people is their way of talking about people who perceive life primarily through the mind and they say the prophecies have been told for millennium that at this time in history the fifth pachacuti the eagle people will dominate the planet and they will have be so sophisticated in their use of the mind they will excel in their use to the mind, that they will even uh, develop tools that extend the power and capacity of the human mind. Um, and they will be extraordinarily wealthy and successful with their minds, but they will be spiritually impoverished to their peril, the eagle people, and their very survival will be at risk at the beginning of this, this time period. While the condor people, which is they refer to themselves, will be highly, highly evolved and sophisticated in their uh, understanding of the spirit world and the uh, and the natural world. Um, and they will be highly sophisticated in those ways, the ways of what they would call the heart, while we are sophisticated in the ways of the mind. But they will be materially impoverished to their peril, and their survival will be at risk. And at the beginning of the of the the fifth Pachacuti, which began around 1992, the eagle people, even though the condor people in the minority, they'll still be very, uh, very evolved. 
the eagle people and the condor people will, what they say, remember, remember that they are each other and they will rejoin and begin to fly together in the same skies and the whole world will come back into balance. The heart and mind of humanity will rejoin. The prophecy also says that for the first 25 to 30 years of the change from the Pachacuti of dominance and darkness, the 500 years, to the next 500 years, that change, that transition of 25 to 30 years will be very, very, very rough. And Pachamama, their name for Mother Earth, will humble all her creatures with huge climactic events, tsunamis, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, huge climactic changes that humble all her creatures so so they will remember their rightful role with her as we go into the Pachacuti of balance and light. Wow. Well, that's beautiful prophecy and seems like a wonderful place to stop. And I just want to thank you so much for this conversation. I know you're very busy doing remarkable work and uh, you've been an inspiration to so many. I mentioned to my family, to myself, and uh, I look forward to to sharing this and uh, in some capacity, uh, hopefully being a part of the work that you're doing. So, So thank you so much, Lynn. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Aaron. My pleasure.